0: Well, as the kids make their way, if you could, you take your Bibles, open up to John chapter seven this morning, John chapter seven. And while you're doing that, I'm going to turn to Psalm 63, um, which is not our passage this morning, but was on my mind, was actually part of my devotions over the course of this week. And although uh, we did kind of missed last week. Um, and so I think a reminder is probably good enough of itself, but even textually, we're going to probably drop back into verse 37 and again, see what the issue is um, as far as what Jesus is challenging these crowds with. Who is he? Um, when he says something that if your preacher, me or anyone else ever says that um, I am life-giving then you would look at that human being and you would say, that's crazy. And you should leave that church if the pastor says he is the one that will give you everlasting fulfillment and will quench every desire in your heart. Because no human can do that. And of course, Jesus is claiming to be more than that, to be the one who truly is fully God and fully of man, who can quench thirst. And so reading this week and meditating on Psalm 63, I thought was fitting, and I thought just even open before we pray, thinking of this, because we do come to John chapter 7, and um, we looked at it a couple weeks ago now, that water ritual at the end of the Feast of Booze, and this picture of salvation coming and being that, um, our life being a desert apart from God, and that he comes, Christ, as the oasis, as the flowing waters. If anyone is thirsty, come and drink. And so Psalm 63, verse one says this. It says, O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land without water, Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life, and my lips will laud you. And thus I will bless you as long as I live, and I will lift up my hands in your name. Father, our soul is satisfied completely in you, and so we sing praises to your name for what you have done, Lord, that we Experience before meeting you, complete parchment as a desert wasteland. And we know that it was you who brought the living waters as we looked to Christ and we believed in him. And even as we have come to know you, we know that we, Even now in the flesh, even as those who are new creations in Christ, Lord, as we sin, Lord, as we even live in this life, Lord, if we detach ourselves from Jesus, the true vine, we again begin to feel parched. And when we repent and we come to you, we yet again are refreshed by the life-giving waters of your spirit through Christ. And so we thank you and are reminded this morning that every soul has a thirst that is only quenched. As Solomon put it, you have put eternity in the hearts of men. And Lord, only you can satisfy, only you can bring answers to life's biggest questions. Remind us of those things this morning as we look to your word as your spirit ministers to us, as your spirit searches our hearts and knows every, whether it be anxious or good or evil thought, and may you shape us more into the image of your son. We just pray this in his name, amen. Well, you can flip over if you're not already there to John chapter seven, and we're gonna come to the end of kind of this chapter, which isn't really quite maybe the end of the section as we'll see next week, but... We are towards the end of this Feast of Booze. I don't know if you have kind of noticed over the last few weeks that as we enter 2024, it is an election year. It doesn't matter where you look, what channel you turn on, what article you read, you're going to read something probably or hear something or watch something about candidates, about caucuses, last week in Iowa, this week in New Hampshire, and everything is gonna be about what happens in November for the most part. That's what the news cycle is gonna be about all year long. And there's in some ways when that ends, it'll be the next new cycle in the next year and so forth and so on. But never do you quite feel that America is kind of divisive or that there's options or people are trying to make distinctives than at this period, even within a single party, right? You have candidates who wanna make distinctions, Say, I know we're agreeing on these issues, but we disagree on these issues. And they're trying to do that to set themselves apart. They're trying to, to divide in that way of saying, I believe this is true. And the other person saying, well, I believe that's false, but I believe this is true. And sometimes I think you can go, whether it's in your local community, in your family, in the church, you feel those same kind of divisions. We just seem to all have opinions and not everyone agrees, with our opinions. I know, even in the church. I think we should do something this way and someone else says, but we should do it that way. And you have division. And so we even have in the Bible, whole books like 1 Corinthians written to a church that is full of division with an emphasis, Paul saying, but we are united in Christ. We are united in the gospel. And so in the church, there should be at least that unifying theology of who Christ is. That is, we believe John. We believe John 1.1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. We believe John 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so as we kind of round out the end of chapter 7 and the conclusion of the Feast of Booths, I want to reconsider what Jesus said in verse 37 to set up how that becomes the division. Because that's what we're going to see. It's going to divide The crowd. It's going to divide the Pharisees. It's going to divide them into some who want to say Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Or Jesus is the prophet. Or Jesus is none of those things. Because how could any of that come from Galilee? And we're going to see that division. And really, what you view or how you view Jesus is going to be that division and divide. And so the church is going to claim something that is distinctive because the rest of the world can't truly believe that Jesus is simply a moral teacher, that he's a good man because good people don't say things like he says in John 7, verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Just stop for a moment and think about that. And imagine I said that this morning. Imagine if I said, if anyone is thirsty here this morning, come to Josh and drink. What would you think? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) But Jesus isn't just a man. In fact, that is gonna be the response I wanna see as we're gonna get to the second part of this sermon that he isn't just a man. He is someone like no other. And you could say a man like no other, but that's because he's not just a man. He is a man, he's fully man, but he's also fully man. God. So if you want to think of it this way, this sermon, I'm just going to look at kind of two parts. Part one being, let's go and let's review the desert. And so since we did have last week where we didn't get a chance to jump back in, we're going to notice 37 is within this whole section. We're going to see there's kind of a break there with the now on the last day that's going to flow from what he is saying in 37, 38, and 39 to what the crowd is going to do, which is make these divisions. They're going to say, we think this about Jesus. Others are going to say we think this, etc. There is going to be a divide that is going to happen over who they think Jesus is. But I say review of the desert because we looked at two weeks ago this issue of what this ritual, water ritual, which isn't necessarily in isn't in the Old Testament, but something that was developed in the kind of the Second Temple Judaism post-Nehemiah, where this water that was drawn every morning during this seven-day festival represented this salvation. Eventually it became to see as a salvation for all of Israel, a coming time where water would flow, that life would flow, just as we think water gives life. When we are sitting in, you know, a polar vortex and you long and you kind of remember in your mind of when things turned green in a couple months, Lord willing, And it does so because there's water. If you want any kind of positive view of snow, right? It's that it melts and it's going to saturate the ground and it's going to make things even more beautiful when the spring comes because that's what water does. And that's their picture of water. They probably have a better, greater grasp of that, living in a climate where there are deserts, very Aryan kind of climate where water was not guaranteed, where for me, unless your pipes are froze, which some of mine were, uh, you can turn on water at any point. They would not know that. They understood the value of water in a way that we, perhaps only in our weakest moments when you've been away and you, maybe you've been running or you've been outside, when you've been truly parched and you think that, which I've maybe taken for granted my whole life, that drink of water is so refreshing in that moment. Jesus is pointing back to say, every person is parched. Every person is in their own way, A desert. That's why I think when you think about presenting the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, you have to include the bad news. The bad news is we're sinners. We have a need. If you don't communicate that, people don't realize how thirsty they are. But Jesus has been teaching hard truths So whether it be chapter 5, chapter 6 Remember this is really is a big section Of where they are rejecting Jesus He said difficult truths In chapter 6 So much so that the crowds walk away He says things Like chapter 6 verse 63 The spirit is the one who gives life The flesh profits nothing The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. He goes on to say, verse 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. And the result, verse 66, Many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go? That's how difficult the things he he, he is saying that he is teaching that many, if not, you could say most, walk away. But yet Peter gives the answer that all every believer gives, which is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's all a context of the feast of booze there in verse two of chapter seven, because it says now the feast of the Jews in verse two, the feast of booze was near and you remember the brothers try to coax him to go up to take his rightful place. This is the best place for you to declare your messianic reign. But Jesus says, It is not yet my time. That is, he's not going to go up with a crowd. He's not going to go up with this kind of um, celebration triumphantly at this time because his time has not yet come. But he's going to go up later and he's going to continue not to do miracles, but to teach. And he's been teaching throughout chapter seven. They're somewhat concerned of saying, why does this man think he is being persecuted? Why does he think that people are after him and are going to kill him? And Jesus says to them, this reality in verse 33, just a few verses before 37, that for a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And so they start wondering and going, what does he Mean Is he going to go to the Greeks or is he going to go to the Jews in the dispersion throughout kind of Asia, uh, that Asia Minor there? Is he going there? What is Jesus saying? But clearly when we get to our passage this morning, there are many who do seem to go, I believe, I think he is. Maybe they don't have a lot of confidence yet, but that he's the prophet or that he is the Christ. Then you're going to see others are going to make a decision and say, no, he cannot be those things. But I think the division really happens there in verse 37. It's this issue that divides. That he says on that last day, the seventh day, the great day of the feast, he stood up and he cried out. And so the picture here is of that final day. Each day they gather water at the pool of Shalom and they march it back in and they sing songs and it's a big celebration. And perhaps there's even the moment where they come and they pour that water out where he cries out. You got to get a picture of he's not just whispering. There's lots of words you could use here. This is a word of a loud cry. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water which we saw two weeks ago, is not an exact quotation, but a reference back to many Old Testament verses, particularly Isaiah, of saying salvation will come to you if you believe in me. That is, if you trust in me, you will no longer be thirsty. And the difficulty they're having throughout the gospel of John is that Jesus is offering this salvation and they're wondering, well, what we really want is physical. We want salvation from Rome. We want salvation from pain, from suffering. And Jesus is saying, not that there won't be a physical salvation because Jesus is coming back and there will be complete unity. But he's saying, your biggest issue is spiritual, not physical. And that's the struggle they're having is seeing that which is spiritual. It's why they're struggling with John chapter three, being born again. What does that mean? Living water. And all of these analogies they're struggling with are the physical versus the spiritual. And he's trying to draw them back to say, even though there are physical promises in the Old Testament, even though he's saying and not denying there is a future fulfillment of all of those physical promises, which I believe will happen and be fulfilled in time and history. But he's saying, but always the issue, the root issue was this spiritual gap, divide, because God is perfect and holy and just, and you are sinners, and you need salvation. You need someone to pay the penalty for your sin to be reconciled to God. You are someone who is desperately thirsty, who needs this spiritual water that not only comes in and flows, but then kind of turns into a fountain and a rushing river into the world. And even clarifies here, John likely clarifies verse 39 he spoke of the spirit that is the living water the spirit is the picture of that one who comes and dwells in the believer and from it flows the power of God to minister not only to the church but to one another and to the world whom those who believed in him were going to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified it is this picture of the spirit coming, giving life. Jesus is claiming, I am what you are looking for. What they are celebrating at the Feast of Booze is a hope for a future salvation. Now they are tying that salvation, both spiritual and physical together. And it's not to say physical will not happen because it will happen, but that's really more revelation, right? When Jesus returns conquering and first he must save them from their sins. It's this anticipation. I think of this imagery. If you can imagine there's been so many movies, so many books that have kind of uh, they look at a kind of dystopian area, um, kind of a, a world that has crumbled, or an America that didn't exist, or somewhere where freedom and democracy has fallen, and what would that look like? I'm sure you've seen whether it be a show or a movie or read a book. And I imagine in that kind of dystopian era that Americans gather where the country no longer exists and they celebrate the 4th of July, kind of as a memory, right? They look back and they go, remember when America was free? And they get together and there's that kind of unity and that kind of nationalistic patriotism. And they look forward to a day when they will be free again. Out of all the major three holidays... I don't know if they call them holidays. I guess they do now, but they wouldn't necessarily be there. But the, the three major festivals in the Old Testament, Feast of Booze being one, and think of Passover and Pentecost being the other two. This was the one that was most kind of like the 4th of July for them. That was nationalistic. That looked towards, especially in the way tradition had built up, towards salvation. And they had tied those water passages of when God would bring salvation to it. And they're looking for that day. And Jesus says, I am the living water. If anyone's thirsty, if you want water, if you want salvation, you come to me. And so in that way, he says, what you're looking forward forward is here and it is me. Particularly the Pharisees aren't willing to believe that. They anticipate an eschatological blessing, but in their own way, in their own time. what John wants to show us and what Jesus is telling them is that he is the dawning of that coming era that will come even through the work of the spirit Pentecost the spirit comes and indwells believers and empowers them probably the best example as you look at the weakness the end of John we're going to get there Lord willing one day but the end of John you're going to see a very weak Peter very weak who then is reconciled and the most unlikely thing happens is the man who betrayed Jesus three different times, who then struggles to be reconciled with Jesus, actually goes and preaches a powerful sermon, maybe one of the most powerful sermons ever in Acts chapter 2. And hundreds and thousands are saved. And you go, what's the difference? Well, because the Spirit comes and dwells, and from him flow these rivers of living. Waters, Because he brings salvation and then from that flows this ministry that is coming. But Jesus is saying, I am the water. I am what you need as a dry desert. If your soul is dry and parched, he's saying, come to me and I will give you not only water to drink, but I will give you rest and it will flow like a rushing river. So that picture of Jesus being the fulfillment of that whole feast, which looked back to their wandering in the wilderness, the importance of water, salvation. Even there, um, it's not here, but part of the ritual eventually was they marched around with the seven different times, kind of representing Jericho. When they marched around seven times in Joshua, the end of the wandering, they saw that all this picture here of this feast being salvation coming, and Jesus is saying, "I am." That salvation. But with that kind of claim, here's what happens. That kind of claim leads to division. And so, like I said, part one, remember or review what we saw in the desert and that Jesus is saying, I am the the oasis, the water that gives life. But the second part of this is that we need to remember the inevitable division that comes. Because I get it. You look at a year like this year and it's gonna feel like can't we all just get along but there are some things because of truth that you go we're just not we're gonna have to divide on that issue and the day is coming I said revelation when there will be absolute unity but until that time the one thing that will divide the church ultimately from the rest of the world is their view of who Jesus is it's simply Inevitable. And so this division occurs. If you will look over to verse 43, you see that. It says a division occurred in the crowd because of Jesus. Because not just of who he was, but of course what he is teaching. Believe in me, and I will give you life eternal. Well, that's a pretty massive claim, and everyone's wondering, what do you think about him? What do you think? What do you think? Full. And final unity is not yet here on who Jesus is. And here in the Gospel of John, even today, there is an inevitable division. I think of Matthew chapter 10. Because we think of Jesus being unifying, and he does bring unity in truth. Yet also, he says very clearly, in his first coming, he is going to divide over who do you believe he is? And so Matthew 10, 34, says, do not think, this is Jesus speaking, that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. He says, continuing, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, follow me, follow after me, is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That is to say, it's inevitable. There will be some division depending on who you believe he is. Kind of a similar similar text in Luke 12, where it says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Doesn't sound very nice, right? Fire kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo. He's talking about his death and how distressed I am until it is finished. Do you think that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. From now on, five members of one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be what? Divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother in law against daughter in law, daughter in law against mother in law. And so we're not shocked to see division. Doesn't mean that division isn't sad. I don't think Jesus is commenting on that. He's just saying it's inevitable that you will see it because if you believe his words, it makes all the difference in your life and the decisions you make in the life that you lead. And so the crowd has a similar choice to make. What are they going to do? How are they going to divide up? You could say it's somewhat of a kind of threefold division here. Verse 40, some of the crowd, therefore, when they heard these words, so that's why I wanted to go back and review the desert review. Jesus saying that I, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink because it seems to be those words that cause all the stir because they heard these words, verse 40, and they're saying this truly is the prophet. We've seen that a couple different times in John. Deuteronomy talks of a prophet that would come like Moses. When they say, this is the prophet, they're looking back to say, not just is he any prophet, but is he the prophet who is very often tied to then Messiah? And so others are saying, well, this must be then the Christ, the long awaited Jewish Messiah. And then if you go to verse 41 and 42, you kind of see this third group of people where they question, how could it be If he's born in Galilee, if he's from Galilee, surely this cannot be the Messiah. And they were saying, no, for is the Christ going to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so division occurred in the crowd because of him. That is because of Jesus. I just am fascinated how well they seem to know their scriptures. They seem to know and they go, well, we, they're all gathered in Jerusalem at the end of this feast going, we know some things and does he fit? Does he not fit? You would wonder if anyone was bold enough to just ask Jesus. I don't think the Pharisees want to ask him because they want to kind of continue to be ignorant because they want it to play out the way they want it to play out. But it's just summed up as simply a division where 43 then says, it's dividing them. And you're going to see 44, some of them are then going to go about wanting to seize him. But they're not going to be able to, which goes back to chapter 7 earlier, which for us has been a few weeks ago. Why? Because it was not yet his time. It's the way it happened with Jesus in his life on earth, and it's going to keep happening everywhere the gospel is faithfully preached. You're going to see these kinds of divisions based on who you think that he is. And of course, the reality of truth is there's a right side and there's a wrong side and John is pleading don't be on the wrong side believe he is the Messiah the son of God we we'll look at the officer's report that continues on here they've been charged earlier to go and to get him the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees I think it's interesting here these are temple officers these are uh, uh, very likely Levites that is, they, they aren't just kind of the regular police. They, they are the temple police. Um, they, they have a spiritual background. They'd be have raised as Levites. So maybe even they're more sensitive as they see Christ and they see him speak. And so they report to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to them, or the Pharisees' chief priests say to those officers, why did you not bring him? This is a simple snatch and go, right? Just go grab him, bring him back, get him off the street, get him so he no longer can speak and no longer cause us trouble. And the officers simply say to him, Never has a man spoken like this. This is a great it's a great sentence. Never has a man spoken like this. They're just going, I don't know what to tell you, but if you were there, you wouldn't have grabbed him either. He spoke in a way, it was authority, it was his whatever it was, they said, "This isn't any ordinary man. How could we, we we couldn't do it." Never has a man spoken the way Jesus has spoke. Of all the things, I think they probably would have said, or could have said, probably this is the most infuriating thing to those leaders. Because they're saying there's something intrinsic about this man that is different. And that is not what they want to hear. It isn't even a miracle at this point. They're just saying this man believes he is something else. The way he speaks is in a way that no one has ever heard. What are they going to do with that? Well, the Pharisees are simply going to turn to probably what is most natural and much, mostly human, which is they're going to try to mock and shame them. Verse 47, Pharisees then answered them, have you also been led astray? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? Listen, the smart people don't believe this. Are you not going to follow the smart people? It's kind of this peer pressure. look, if he was truly a Messiah, those who knew the law would do that. Are you going to go with the crowd? The crowd doesn't know anything. Have you also been led astray? Verse forty-nine. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And they, in essence, set themselves like above and against the crowd, saying, "You guys are all disobedient to law. You don't know the law, and you're accursed because we are the only ones who not only know, but then, in their own pride." are obedient to the law, which we've already seen in John. That's actually not the case. And even Nicodemus is going to kind of question, but do you obey the law? Because the law says something about accusations. It says something about arrest that you're not being obedient to. You're not obeying the law where it is extremely clear. And that's what Nicodemus says. Okay, you're saying they're accursed, but you guys aren't following the law either. And so Nicodemus speaks up Identified not only by name, but as he who came to him before. So this is the very same Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, being one of them, and says to them, does our law judge a man unless it hears from him and knows what he is doing? That is to say, listen, the law is very clear here. You just can't go arrest people. You need to try them. Well, do they go, oh, you are right. We forgot about that one. no. <laughs> They simply say, let's double down and we will shame you. Are you not, are you also from Galilee? Which is hard for us to read and understand without giving probably some level of analogy of whatever probably town you disrespect most. I don't want to make Hawkeye and Husker jokes because we have both here. Both are welcome at church. But it is to say, Galilee would be something you don't want to associate with. So imagine what you don't want to associate with. Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Which is also in and of itself. They're doubling down. They want to remain ignorant. They don't want answers. They don't want to ask good questions. You can even look at that question where if the inference is the prophet— You could say, okay, they're probably right. The prophet is coming where? Not from Galilee. He's coming from Bethlehem, which we know Jesus came from the line of David in Bethlehem. So they're even wrong about that. But also they might even just be trying to double down and just try to shame and mock and go, listen, nobody good comes from Galilee. But historically speaking, actually you have a few different prophets like Jonah, Nahum, that come from Galilee. And so you might, if you were saying, well, actually I think I know one who came from Galilee but they may just be referring back to the prophet and saying, well, we we know the prophet doesn't come out of there, but it is their prejudice at work. And you think about that. Why in God's sovereign plan, Jesus is born in little Bethlehem and not Jerusalem. Why in God's sovereign plan is then he raised, not in Jerusalem, but in backwoods Galilee. Until you look and you read the whole of scripture and you go, hmm, that actually sounds exactly what the Lord would do because he continues to use the weak, uses people that are unsuspecting for his glory. And he, in many ways, in that way, receives more glory for using that. And it's even more than judgment on them because they can't imagine because of their own heart of prejudice that anything good could come from Galilee. It's simply basic tactic of shame. Well, as you look at this, I just want to think this claim. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That seems to be the issue that is dividing at this point, at the end of the festival. But I want to look at, just briefly, eight other claims that one commentator brings out, which we've seen a couple of them already, and I think it's just kind of interesting to look and to Ask those questions of what claims does he make? Why is he so divisive? And is he going to let you ride the fence? Which, in that metaphor, riding the fence is a very uncomfortable place to be. And this morning, if you are the, on the fence, the plea from the text, from John, from me, is to get off the fence. He's not going to let you say, well, he's a good man. He's a moral man. No. He claims things that are either true or not. For example, he claims to be God. John 13, 19. We're going to look at eight of these real quick. He literally says, I am. I'm telling you this now. Says John 13, 9, before it takes place that when it does place that you may believe that I am he. John 10:30, I and the Father are. One, the I am, Yahweh, Exodus 3. Number two, he claims to exist before he was born. John 8, 58, truly, truly, I you, before Abraham was, I am. See the same thing, that's exactly what John the Baptist believes in his deity. Number three, he claims to be the divine shepherd who has come to die for his sheep. Thief comes to only kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He claims to be the only way. So there's an exclusive claim. I am the way, John 14. The truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Same thing we're gonna see in next two weeks from now. I am the light. He also claims to be that which gives sustenance not just in this life but in the next bread from heaven water that imparts eternal life we saw that in John 6 he claims that we could do nothing without him i am the true vine the father is the vine dresser John 15 i am the vine you are the branch whoever abides in me and i in him he is that bears much fruit for apart from me you could do nothing as he said if you just want to know how crazy that sounds to their ears, imagine I said that about me. And you go, oh, that doesn't make any sense, Josh, which it wouldn't from me. But if Jesus is who he says he is, it makes complete sense that he is the vine. We are the branches and we can do nothing apart from him. Number seven, he claims to uh, the one who raises people, would be the one who raises people from the dead at the end of history. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he has died, shall live. And then lastly, he claims Number eight, to be the supreme glory that will satisfy us forever in the age to come. John 17, the high priest prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, there are, Dozen more of those claims. I just thought those eight, which I read this week, were helpful and insightful for us just to think what else is he saying that is causing these kinds of divisions? And also, just simply to give another footnote to go, we have to take Jesus for what he is. And if those things aren't true, then he, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis famously said, he's either a liar, lunatic, or lord. In fact, I want to read a longer section you can just listen to from that quote. That quote isn't quite actually a direct. C.S. Lewis quote is from a broader section in mere Christianity. But his point is to say you can't think Jesus is a sane moral teacher because he said too many radical divisive things about who he is. And so I just appreciate this. And if you've never heard the full context, thought it'd be insightful as we conclude this morning. But he says this in mere Christianity that I am trying here to prevent anyone, Lewis says, from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who said that sort of thing, the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make Your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There's a reason that is so well known Jesus didn't leave it open. He did not intend to leave it open of his claims. It's very clear over and over again, he is claiming. The question is do you believe what he has claimed? In other words, to believe in these things and then to say he's not God is completely irrational. In fact, it wouldn't be nice at all. Rather, is to believe these things, to recognize what Jesus is identifying, which is there's an issue with man's heart. They need a new heart. They need to be born again. And the only way for that to happen is to turn to him, to trust in him, to believe in him, to drink from his words and believe he is the Christ, the son of God. It goes back to the issue of the desert. Do you recognize you are a sinner in need of a savior? Do you recognize God is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and that we are not, and that we need someone to come and to bear the sin, the judgment of sin that Paul says is death. It's a reminder not only of the very gospel itself, but even as we speak and share that gospel, do you share it in a way that makes people thirsty, that they recognize their thirst Because when you do, I think what you'll find is you'll create division. Not in a bad way, but in the way that simply is inevitable because of who Jesus claims he is to be. And as much as I like to be Nebraska nice, we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with that kind of division? Because Jesus was. Flip over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter one. I just want to close reading this section. I think it's fitting for multiple reasons. One, or at least not the least of which the reason would be because this is a book about unity. Unity that is around truth. So again, that doesn't mean there is no division, but within the church, we're unified on who Christ is. We're unified on the gospel message. And it's also a reminder here that, just because we desire and long for Christ's return to bring true unity, we live in this world and there's going to be division because of the claims of the gospel. And in fact, lest you think like the Pharisees and the scribes, that you're better than them, everyone else, and well, I know these things and they don't. This is the kind of section that should humble you in the best kind of way. Because if you are here, and God has called you, and the Father has drawn you to his Son, this is who you are. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse eighteen. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Couldn't help but think. Look at chief priests and the Pharisees in John chapter seven. Where are they? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well-pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who what? Believe. For indeed, Jews ask for science, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To a Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the humbling part where he says, let's think about the implications of that. Verse 26. For consider your calling, you and I, brothers, that we were not many wise according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. But in his doing, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Just a reminder that although the world, whether in John 7, the scribes and the Pharisees, they want to shame you to say, are you just like those Galileans? Just remember, God has chosen the weak things to shame the strong. He has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time this morning. What a reminder it is of the way that you work and even for us to be humbled this morning, that we do not come as those with all the answers, but simply to say what we have is simply that which you have given to us. And by our very presence this morning, gathered as your church, Lord, we are identifying with those things that the world would see as foolish. But yet we see the same claims of Jesus, that he is living water, that he is the one, if you are thirsty and you come to, will quench your thirst forevermore. We believe it is true. And we have experienced it in the power of regeneration and in the indwelling of the spirit as we walk out our Christian lives. Encourage us this morning, even in those truths, Lord, that we can come to you and be refreshed, even this morning. Those who are here that do feel weary, that feel parched, may your word through the power of your spirit just quench their thirst this morning in the way, in the only way that Christ can. We just ask these things in his name, amen.